Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 76, The Cloudminders. Welcome to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. This, this is the show where we dig deep to mine the life-sustaining minerals that make up Star Trek. Today's show, The Cloudminders. Yep, it's The Cloudminders where they are digging deep to mine the life-sustaining minerals that save plants. Oh, this is the episode with Miracle Groium. Right. They discover yes. Miracle Grow. <laughs> A lot of people don't know this. This was actually the uh, the second uh, promotional uh, episode where they, I mean, well, like a real product product placement. That's <laughs> right. what I'm looking for. The first one, of course, was Idic, and mm-hmm. the second one was Miracle Grow. So yeah, really, you yeah. Go. You know, if they had discovered this in season two, we might have gotten to season four. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would have solved all the problems. <laughs> it, may, it would have been it just fine. Satisfied the bean counters. You know, the people living in the clouds. I don't even want to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we'll get there. Oh, we'll, get, we'll there. get there. You know what I yeah. want to talk about, though? You know what I want to talk about? Well, you know what I want you to talk about? <laughs> What's that guy? Trivia. Cool. I would love to do it. Please do. Um, so in today's episode, The Cloudminders, we do have uh, some interesting bits that we want to share with you. Uh, first of all, the character named Droxine Ken. I, I need to tell you that I looked all over. I searched <laughs> high and low to find some meaning in the name Droxine. Yeah. And uh, actually, it's the uh, it's the drug name for uh, uh, Levothoxine sodium. Yeah. Um, you left out an thi- R. Thyroxine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah levothyroxine <laughs> sodium. And uh, so if you're treating uh, if you're treating goiter. Or naming um, a girl. Or naming a girl. Or uh, treating uh, uh, hypothyroidism. Or naming then, a girl. Uh, or naming a girl. Yeah. So it's, I was really hoping that after 1969, there'd be a big boom and people named Droxine. But uh, <laughs> apparently there was not. No. Um, also, we have to mention that, you know, obviously the troglites that we refer to throughout the episode are a shortened version of troglodyte, uh, a.k.a. cave dwellers. Uh, so uh, Spock mentions that briefly in the show. Uh, this story, the original draft was by David Gerald, he who wrote the trouble with tribbles, but he was not happy at all with the final changes made to uh, what actually aired. He mostly blames uh, producer Fred Friedberger. And uh, in his original script, there are a lot of minor changes there, but some pretty major ones too. There was originally no gas uh, that was causing the uh, uh, the sort of the mental drop in abilities with the troglites. Um, and his ending was a little more somber with the realization that the crew couldn't just go in and in a few minutes solve a whole society's problem. Problems. Uh, the teleplay was co-written by Oliver Crawford. You may remember that name because he co-wrote the Galileo 7, and he also wrote the teleplay for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Um, floating cities, by the way, I thought this was kind of cool. Um, that's been a concept ever since at least Gulliver's Travels. Um, and in science fiction, they really became de rigueur in the 20s. Um, there may be one other large science fiction franchise you can think of that prominently uses a floating cloud city. We might even just call it Cloud City or, uh, Bespin. Um, the, uh, the design of this episode I thought was kind of cool. Um, I was sort of watching it, pointing out to myself the, uh, the various elements that were used by the uh, 
set decorator John Dwyer. There's the ribbon chair. Uh, Spock is sort of lounging in, designed by Pierre Paulin in 1966. And uh, actually, there's a lot of cool kind of modern mid-century uh, uh, art and furniture that they grab from a collector and uh, just sort of like changed it around. They just sort of move the orientation or they would take furniture and hang it on a wall and call it art. Uh, so that is what they did for this episode. So uh, if you are a furniture guy, furniture collector, then this is the episode of Star Trek to watch. Um, John Corey, I want to mention some of the uh, uh, guest stars in this episode. John Corey, who plays Plasis, the high advisor, uh, continued working nearly until his death in 2002. He was extremely well regarded as an acting teacher as well mm-hmm. as uh, as an actor. He was actually, um, he's one of those guys, for people who, for whatever reason, didn't get a chance to watch this week's episode before listening to this. He's one of those guys that you'll see him. And you'll 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 say, oh, hey, it's that guy. Yeah, he was just in everything. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he yeah. was. Well, he was in everything except uh-huh. he was not in Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, you're kidding? No, actually, so you think of, of of all shows, he would end yeah. up in Kolchak yeah. the Night it, Stalker. It seems like yeah. he was in every TV show except for Kolchak, including, and maybe this will be okay for people. He did do an episode of Kojak. You know, it, it's easy to get those two confused, and maybe that's what happened. So. Yeah, I maybe think he thought go. excellent. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cold check the night. Oh, it's oh the man, bomb. yeah. I'm gonna get an agent, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> this can't happen again. Yeah. So sadly, he was not on cold check. But what is this like? Nine episodes in a row now that we've mentioned that show. I, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah you're we welcome. I think we stopped yeah. that when we get to the cartoon. By the way, maybe because <laughs> well, none of those I, cartoons I, were ever no in cold check. Well, no, no, no. no, no I'm promises. just saying. I'm, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, we also need to mention Diana Ewing, who plays Droxine in this episode, um, mm. not used to treat hypothyroidism. No, uh, she's, you know, she's, she's easy on the thyroid, though. <laughs> she is. She is. Uh, she stopped acting in the 1970s. Uh, she appeared mostly in TV, Mission Impossible, the FBI, uh, the terrible, terrible Matt Helm series uh, from 1975. I don't know if you ever saw it, but I'm telling you, it's terrible. Um Charlene Polite, who played Vana, passed away in 1999. Just a handful of acting credits to her as well. But I do have to point out a very minor character here. Uh, Anka is played by Fred Williamson. He is one of the troglites, and he just has a massive, huge career, particularly in exploitation films. But he's another one of those guys where you see him and you know, like, oh, it's that guy. Uh, Black Caesar, I think, is the one that I remember him from. Uh, but he was on the show Police Story. He was, he showed up in Chips, Fantasy Island. I, I mean, you pretty much name a show between 1969 and, well, now. And Fred Williamson was on it. So uh, glad to see him here. Ken, before we get into today's recap, uh, we're so happy to welcome Connected Data, the makers of Transporter, back as a sponsor for this week's show. Yeah, we told people, or well, I did, um, a little bit about this last week. You and I have both had Transporters for a while. I'm curious, uh, what is, what, what's your favorite feature? Uh, my favorite thing is that I have this beautiful piece of glowing technology on my desk. 
<laughs> is that really it? Oh, God. No, no. I mean, aside you are from so it, form over function. It's crazy. I know. No, aside from it looking very cool, um, I think a lot of people don't know that we actually use Transporter in the production of this show because we can share files very quickly, very easily, and securely on opposite ends of the country. And it's sort of like owning your own Dropbox. Yeah. It's very, very cool. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, actually. My favorite part of the whole thing is the fact that you can access your stuff wherever you are. And that's if you – well, I, I, I'm an Apple-centric person, so I know that's true for an iPhone, an iPad, or a computer. As long as you have an internet connection, as long as your transporter is on wherever it lives. And it doesn't have to live where you live. I mean, as mm-hmm. long as it's on wherever it lives and has an internet connection and you have one, you can access content that's, uh, that's stored on your transporter. And the other thing that I like about it is you do that without the recurring fee. Yes. Um, you mentioned Dropbox. Like 100 gigabytes of storage on Dropbox will run you like 99 bucks a year. Runs me 99 bucks a year. Um, if you already have a drive that you want to use, they have this little transporter. It's 99 bucks. And it basically, as you said, turns that hard drive that you have or that storage device that you have into your own personal cloud. So you don't have to worry about other people having access to it, and you also don't have to pay again and again and again to use the storage. It's 99 bucks for one time. That little thing is called the transporter sync. Now, if you want a bigger one, they have um, they have um, uh, one terabyte or two terabyte uh, transporters um, that you can uh, buy the drives from connected data. It's two hundred forty nine dollars uh, for a one terabyte transporter, which is like less than one time one year for five hundred gigabytes of storage on Dropbox. Like five hundred gigabytes of storage on Dropbox is something like five hundred bucks a year. Yeah. Or you can spend 250 bucks one time for one terabyte, and, you know, that that's your one-time cost, and you got it. So, I mean, more so, storage, more security, one-time fee. Those are, those are some of the things I like about it. So what, what we're saying is there are just a ton of benefits to owning a transporter, not the least of which is that you get to own a device called a transporter. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, then you get to say, yeah, I own a transporter. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I'm cool with you. Can, you. Yeah, well, you can learn all about it at filetransporterstore.com. Check out the models and offers they have available. Uh, then when you decide to buy one, buy it at a discount. Offer code MLOG, M-L-O-G, will get you 10% off your order. All caps, no spaces, M-L-O-G. And get 10% off when you buy your transporter at filetransporterstore.com. Come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you've really got nothing to lose. Beam yourself to filetransporter store.com to find out more transporter storage and sharing made simple and secure brought to you by connected data and uh, we do seriously thank them for supporting mission log looking to get away plan your next vacation for the planet ardana from the sweeping vistas from the city stratus to the historic caves from which ardana civilization sprung Book your passage now. Ardana is calling. Prologue. The Enterprise is on a mission to the planet Ardana to pick up a load of xenite desperately needed by the inhabitants of another planet that faces imminent biological disaster from a spreading plague. Upon arrival at Ardana, the High Advisor tells Kirk to stop by the cloud city Stratos for a visit. Kirk would rather just beam directly to the mine where all the xenite is and be on his way to save the other planet. Kirk and Spock beam down just outside the mine, and they do not find a bunch of xenite. 
What they do find is a rough-looking bunch of people, presumably the miners, who capture Kirk and Spock in a kind of lasso. Act 1. It's been a little while since we've had a good fight, complete with knives wielded and punches thrown. Just as it's getting really good, another group of people materialize. This time it's the high advisor, Plasus, and a couple of guards from the Cloud City. They use weapons to disperse the filthy troglites, the miners and other surface dwellers who would get in the way of Kirk's mission. Plasus invites Kirk and Spock up to Stratos while they figure out what happened to the Xenite. Probably just being held by some malcontents, he assures them, who wanted redress of their grievances. You know, boring political stuff. What's not boring is that once they are on Stratos, a gem of art and architecture, Plasus introduces his beautiful daughter, who immediately charms Kirk. Uh, wait, no, change that. It's Spock who is bitten by the charm bug, and it looks like the daughter, Draxine, is also a little bitten by Spock's cool, aloof charm, too. Kirk and Spock are shown to their quarters while Plasis tries to get to the bottom of the missing Xenite. Oh, and don't mind that pointy, weapon-like thing sticking out of the wall. Just some of the disruptors we'll deal with. Good night. Just then, a couple of guards bring in a troglite miner, possibly a disruptor himself, and he's not cooperating with the line of questioning being thrown at him by Plasis. Rather than stick around, the troglite breaks free and jumps over the rail from Stratos. It's a long way down to the surface, and there's no parachute, minus one for the troglites. While Kirk naps, Spock is having an inner monologue. He lays it all out on the table. There is a huge disparity between the have and have-nots. The people in Stratos have got it all. The troglites working in the mines below have got nothing. Moreover, they are treated like criminals. Also, Troxene is very fetching, and he means that in a cool, aloof, Vulcan kind of way. Too bad all these people can't get along, and too bad Troxene is clueless about how bad conditions are for the other people on her planet. Enough inner monologue. Spock drops by to say hello to Troxene in person. My, but they are curious about each other and the similarities and differences in Vulcans and the people who live in Stratos. Kirk has a visitor, too. Only this isn't a social visit. One of the women in the group who attacked is now creeping in and pointing a knife at the sleeping captain. Act 2. Kirk's a light sleeper. He knocks the knife, well, actually the same kind of mining tool we found earlier, right out of her hand. Kirk would rather get information from the woman, Vana, than just hand her over to the authorities. So, naturally, she picks up the tool again, and Kirk has to wrestle it from her again. Things are going a little differently with Spock. He's telling Droxine about Vulcan mating rituals, and she seems a little perplexed, one might say disappointed, by the whole seven-year cycle. When Kirk calls out for Spock, these two mismatched couples get together where we reveal a little more about the division on this planet. The troglites are not invited at all to share in the spoils of art and culture on Stratos because simply they couldn't handle it. At least Droxine believes so. She sees it as a balance. Some people work while others learn and relax. There is no violence on Stratos. Oh, uh, except for the torture Plasis is now inflicting on Vanna. Spock and Kirk arrive as the torture stops, and Spock even attempts to break through to Plasis and Droxine that the troglites should be treated humanely. They can be taught and treated as equals. Kirk is a little more pointed. They have to stop. And they don't even want their lousy Xenite if it comes from torture. They return to the Enterprise, and Plasis gives the order to his guard that Kirk should be killed if seen in Stratos again. Act 3. 
Time is running out to get the Xenite to Merrick 2, and Kirk is considering breaking the rules and going right to the Troglites to get what he needs. McCoy jumps in to remind Kirk that the Troglites are mentally inferior, but he knows why. The Xenite, in its raw form, emits a colorless, odorless gas which retards their intellectual growth. They are all the same species, but the troglites have a disadvantage from their environment that the city dwellers don't. Now armed with a little science, Kirk contacts a high advisor, but he's not interested in hearing about how the use of a simple gas mask could help the whole situation. Kirk is going in anyway. He beams himself into the room where Ivana is being held, and he tries to reason with her about their discovery of the gas. He offers gas masks for all. He'll even come back and help the troglites work things out with the city dwellers. Vana agrees reluctantly, and they escape to the mines where she will show him the hidden xenite. As soon as they get to the mine, though, Vana has Kirk held by two guards, removes his protective mask, and then forces him to work the mine, digging away at the ore. Act 4. Spock is in command of the Enterprise, and he's pretty sure that things are not going well on Ardana, but he can't do anything about it. Vana has a hostage, Kirk, at Phaser Point, and she sends the mask to Plasis to show her hand. In a moment, Kirk overpowers her, though, and when he gets his phaser back, he blasts the rock, entombing them in the mine. Now that he's got the upper hand, Kirk radios Spock and has the high advisor beam directly to them in the cave. Don't believe the results of our study? Well, it's time that you became part of the experiment. Plasis is minding his own business while Droxine is still a little giddy over Spock. She's hoping he'll come back and sign the 8x10 she has in her bedroom. Plasis says it's just best to forget him. He's got to get onto other things like torturing the troglites. Before he knows what's happening, Plasis finds himself beaming into the cave where he encounters Kirk and Vana. Kirk is a little twitchy. And when he forces Plasis and Vana to dig for Xenite, they start getting a little loopy too. The Xenite gas is definitely having an effect when Plasis lunges at Kirk with a couple of those digging tools. Vana sees what's going on and she grabs Kirk's communicator to call Spock. Thinking fast, Spock has them all beamed up where he can break up the fight. Remember that gas that's making you loopy, irrational, and violent? Yeah, stop that. Back on Stratos. Spock is saying goodbye to Droxine. She's adjusting to the idea of wearing a mask to find out what life is like in the caves. Vana has a Xenite delivered to Kirk, and she reminds Plasis that things are about to change now that her people will no longer suffer the effects of the Xenite gas. There's some bickering, but Kirk offers to send in the Federation to help mediate. The end. Do you think Stratos stays in one place the whole time? You know, I was wondering that. It kind of seemed that way, but from the effect shot, and by the way, I didn't mention the effects um, in the uh, the trivia because, you know, some people watch the remastered, some people watch the original. We usually watch both. But you see a little movement of the planet underneath if you're watching the remastered version, Yeah, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. So even though it looks stationary, I feel like there's got to be at least a little movement. You've got to know, by the way, I thought I thought I'd made this clear before. You watch both. And and God bless you. <laughs> I watch the remastered just because that's what I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, and we figure that most people have that accessible to them yeah. faster than they would have the original. Right. But um, it, it, this is an interesting episode for that because um, 
Cloud City obviously is the biggest effects piece in this episode. Yes. And and it's kind of cool. The original is made exactly as you would think. It, it's bits of foam and wood stuck together with glue and painted and hung from the ceiling on <laughs> cotton. Nice. You know, I mean, but then they, they really kind of honored the original style when they did the remastered version yes they did it's kind of it's kind of cool but it it has that like flash gordon place makes no sense at all no 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 no, it makes no sense at all and even in the remastered they weren't even i mean because bespin makes no sense well the the city um in around bespin it is called cloud city i think but the city around bespin makes no sense but it's got that sort of like thing that hangs on the bottom yeah. And and you know yeah. it's like okay so is that mining gas is that sort of keeping the whole thing steady is that a fin that helps it move around we don't know but there's right. enough there that you think well that might make sense and, right. <laughs> and Stratos right. is just right. like what if we took a city block and levitated it right yeah, okay. yeah well even in Flash Gordon I believe Voltan's city has little. Your rockets firing underneath it to keep it afloat. Uh, see, that's a bad use of resources right there. Yeah, I just nice. kept thinking, you know, a, a cloud city seems like a great place to live until it's not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, this is a great idea <laughs> until that one day. Yeah. You ask, but it's just not a good idea of a place to live. Ask Nick Fury about that. <laughs> right. You know, he's got this whole all about floating it. fortress. What could go wrong? I got one, two, th- I got four engines here. If, yeah. And I can lo- I can even lose two of these engines and not be oh yeah yeah that's kind of that thing is diesel powered because I mean yeah, either no way idea. it's just a bad thing I will say I would imagine that the people of Stratos have absolutely no problem with um, waste management mm, yeah that's true <laughs> boy <laughs> off the yeah. side just off uh-huh. the side the troglites on the other hand may have a little problem with the waste management management of Stratos. Yes, I think they would. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, did you notice at the beginning how Shatner's lips didn't even move during the first line of Act One? Yes. He's that good. Yeah. He is that good. Yeah. Who are you? What is the meaning of this attack? <laughs> you think he was trying to distract them? You think he was thinking maybe they won't realize, they'll think someone else is talking. Yeah, but oh, who's the guy over there that's talking to <laughs> exactly. us? Exactly. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. not moving his lips. Surely right? he is not. I yeah. am an idiot, of course, living in the caves, so it wouldn't even occur to me that he might be throwing right. his voice, or that they might have said, maybe we should dub something in here, because that's a long line for him to be standing staring at them. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, there are versions of this episode where that is just cut out entirely. Yeah. Um, those, depending on where it aired. Those you know. might be good versions. <laughs> they might be. This is, be. well, I'm, forgive me, that's, that is a very small thing to bash, and it may yeah. be one of the only things that we actually bash. We, you know, we... Yeah. We, you know, poke a tiny bit in this part of the show, but yeah, that's mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. to say that would be a better episode is like saying, you know, yeah, Citizen Kane would be great if they had cut that one frame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For all yeah. of you who are new to the show, this is a section where we have fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We don't have fun um, for the rest of the show. So no, 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 no. It's in. just, yeah. Uh, yeah, very academic after that. Um, by the way, something that I won't bash though, Droxine, makeup by Lucira and Natira. I'm glad <laughs> that they teamed up to do her eye makeup. Yeah. Costume. Costume by magic. Yeah. Just well, because yeah. Th- there's no other explanation of how that would work. Stick them. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think that would be it. There's, just, there's liquid latex going on somewhere around there. Glue and Velcro. Exactly. And, Hopefully and not hot glue because ow. No, but, but yeah. 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 Hey, I got a question. Yeah, do it. How can Spock hear Droxine quietly preparing refreshments, but he can't hear somebody trying to kill Kirk? <laughs> right. Nor right. hear that Kirk is kind of like uh Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Kirk seems awfully affectionate with his attacker. I'll put it that way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was yeah. sort of like a date. Yeah, right. <laughs> it just felt like. They just they date differently. Yeah. On that planet. Although, yeah. yeah, well, they do actually maybe above yeah. and but well, no, that was Kirk dating. That was not that was not oh, right, Vana right. dating because Vana's right. like, let me go. And he's like, hey, no, I'm kind of grooving on yeah, this. Well, as long as you're here. On yeah. Stratos, though, they are pretty quick because Droxine has gone from, you know, so you guys are smart. And then we cut away for one minute to Kirk on his date with his attacker. And then we come back and she's like, you know, learning about Pond Far. <laughs> It's been 30 seconds. And you know, Spock's not walking around going, by the way, we can't do it unless you're on Vulcan in five years. (laughs) Yeah. Ponfar, the thing that he cannot tell his captain about. (laughs) He's like, hey, uh, Droxine, let me tell you how uh, this goes down on Vulcan. Yeah, I would really like to hang out with you. I would really like to, but I can only do that every seven years. Although it's interesting, he says they can only do that every seven years unless, but, right. unless there's a pretty the girl. woman is particularly beautiful. <laughs> right. If there's a pretty girl, yeah, he gets a shot of Droxine. And, uh, <clears throat> wow. It sounds, like a, it sounds like a medicine. Well, because it is, as you said <laughs> it before. Is, it is. Right. Which th- then again raises the question of why Spock says in his monologue, Droxine, a very appropriate name for this yep. woman. Like, yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, he had a little bit of a uh, he had a little bit of McCoy itis in this episode too. Um, mm-hmm. Rod was pointing out earlier that this is like um, you know. So what's his name? Uh, the high ambassador or supervisor oh, or whatever. Classes. The yeah. old guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, oh, meet our greatest work of art, my daughter. And yeah. and and she's like, oh, I've never met a Vulcan. And he says, I've never met a work of art. Yeah. And she's so like, wow, because that's usually like a bones kind of thing to do, right? Like, man, you're pretty. <laughs> well, first of all, it, it's strange to me that he would introduce his daughter that way. Like that just seemed a little yeah. strange. Yeah. But she's but available for parties, by the way. I know, right? I mean, that's kind of what it felt like. But hey, but starship thinking, captain, she's single. <laughs> all right, go ahead. But I'm remember sorry. that line. Remember that line, because if you're ever presented with the ability to return to retort with, "I've never met a work of art before," then you use it. You know. So I yep. think Spock had been holding on to that for a long, long time. Probably had. Probably learned it from McCoy. Yeah. Speaking of McCoy, there's a line. He says uh, when he's on the bridge, he goes, yeah, I had the sample of Xenite sent up from the surface. And I'm thinking by whom and when? And why not just call them back and say, can you send us a thousand more of these little samples? Yeah. You got any any more of those samples maybe I can use? Yeah. I'm also curious how he knows without opening it that opening it would have been detrimental to the ship. Mm, yeah, right. Unless he can just, you know, sort of see that through the glass. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this looks terrible. Yeah. Um, I want to point out a couple of technical things that I thought were kind of weird in this episode. When they're all standing, uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in the transporter room, um, looking at the feed coming from Ardana, they're talking to Plasis. Uh, that is a really weird angle that we get from the camera where they created like this little false low ceiling. And I don't know if it was meant to be the POV of Plasis, like seeing the edge of the monitor, but it was this very, it was a very weird shot. And then we never saw that shot again. Um, Cause that is a, a, an odd angle that we get from the transporter room. Anyway, uh, we usually would never see that far into that back wall. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that overall, this episode has some very weird editing, uh, some strange like overlays and jumpy transitions, just stuff that really makes no sense at all. Um, I thought Spock's VO was strange to begin with, that we would do that at all. 
Um, I'm very curious what the thought process was that they had to put that in. And then to do that with the uh, the sort of montage, Draxine and then Vana and the city and then the mines, it, it, it felt very odd. Might it have been an homage or an homage to earlier works? I mean, is that possible? Mm, yeah, well, could be. Yeah, it's been a long time since I know you're going to talk about Metropolis later. It's been a long mm-hmm. time since yeah. I've seen it, but I remember some very like like uh, close-ups of faces and, and things like that. I mean, it might mm-hmm. have been homage. It might have also just been they needed to spend a little bit more time. Or it could also be that they just felt like they had to explain stuff, but you can't just sit there with Spock's lips not moving because we know how well that worked out in the prologue. <laughs> right, right. You can't just sit there with Spock's lips not moving, but just looking at Spock thinking. Yeah. You got to yeah. do something. We could have had him doodling. Maybe. <laughs> there you go. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's weird about this episode to me. Sure. Well, yeah. there's lots, but mm-hmm. um, the mining tool mm-hmm. that uh, Vana you know, tries to use on Kirk on their date. Right. right. Um, yeah. uh, she hits Kirk's wrist with that like three or four times. Mm-hmm. And um, this is not an effective weapon for killing. I guess no. that's, that's really what I'm saying. Because, I mean, after their tussle, um, his, his sleeve isn't even hurt, let alone, you know, his hand. Yeah. And and then later, when the advisor asks, you know, when they're trapped in the mines and the advisor comes at him with the mortes, I think they're mm-hmm. called, uh, when he comes at him with the mortes and asks if Kirk is as good with a morte as he is with a phaser, Kirk says, they'll both kill. I, I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, all I could think of is seeing that morte jabbed into the wall yeah. in, during Act One was yeah. uh, those have got to be some really thin walls. Yeah, no, the reason that the uh, that the disruptor who put that in the wall was not able to complete his mission was because he was too tired trying to jam that into a wall. You're exactly right. Now yes. the, uh, but the, uh, the, the uh, what is it, Lucite? <laughs> What's the yeah. stuff that they're mining? I've already forgotten. Oh, Zenite. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm almost done with this episode as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Zenite, you don't even need a tool for that. He's just like, you know, here, Kirk, use your hand. And Kirk's like just yeah. pulling stuff off with his hand. Why do they even give them tools? Yeah, we, we extract it from the magnificent styrofoam mines of the planet Ardana. <laughs> um, yeah, so, styrofoam would have been a great name for uh, that guy's daughter, too. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, it, this is a, a rare episode in the original series where we get to see a little more uh, transporter with no transporter room, mm-hmm. uh, where they move um, Plasis from his uh, from the little platform and Stratus is directly into the mine. I thought that was kind of cool. And, no, they didn't. Wait, no, they didn't. Oh, oh, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. They, they beam him up and then push him down. Yeah. They're very much like the man in that respect. They mm-hmm. beam him up and then they push him down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and speaking of the man, we learned about a new piece of bureaucracy. Yep. The Federation Bureau of Industrialization, the FBI. Yes, yes. Coming in as the mediator. Oh, my goodness. I didn't pick up that it was FBI. That's uh-huh. so funny. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you talked about the actors in this episode. I feel like you left out an important one. It was really great to see the lights of Zatar getting a cameo here. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad uh, yeah. to see them used as a torture device. Yeah, that yeah. was pretty cool. Power uh-huh. Ray is there. Yeah. Um, I do have uh, one thing, and this is just more of my, you know, sort of uh, dyed-in-the-wool geekiness. Mm-hmm. Um, when Vana turns on Kirk and Kirk is wearing the mask again, mm. if you have not right. seen this, then this won't mean quite as much to you, but I wanted him <laughs> to say theatricality and deception are powerful agents to the uninitiated. <laughs> but we are initiated, aren't we, Vana? Members of the League of Shadows. Because he looked. Yeah. Ken Ray, everybody. Straight up, straight was, up like, uh, like Bane. Bane. Yeah. yeah. That was a good. It was, that was, right. a, it was yeah, all right. It was all right. I had it written down. Turns out I've been saying it wrong for like a year. 
I, I went back <laughs> no. to double check the quote, and it turns out, yeah, it's so. Mm-hmm. My wife will be happy that I'm finally getting that right. Um, and the one last thing, it's kind of embarrassing. It's a, it's a terrible thing to say about, you know, somebody who's passed on and who did a fine job in this episode, but the Supreme mm-hmm. Advisor has VPL. I never even <laughs> noticed that, even in a high def. I yeah, yeah. Wow. And you'd think, you know, if they're going to go to all the trouble of remastering. <laughs> yeah, right. That You can remove that digitally now, so I'm told. Oh, uh, well. Looking to aid in the fight for equality? Plan your next mission for the planet Ardana. The ruling class looks down, literally, looks down, on the working class, every minute of every hour of every day. The times, they are a-changing. Ardana is calling. I would imagine that John is likely to agree with me on some of what I'm about to say and do. I would imagine that he will... But um, hate mail is going to come to me and let it bring it. No, no. it's okay. I'm okay with this episode because I firmly believe what I'm about to say. Generally speaking, we try to converse in this Mm -hmm. part, John, and I appreciate that. But Mm -hmm. I just want to read out a bunch of stuff because I went on this like um, um, sort of stream of consciousness typing thing Mm. when, when, when when we were watching or when I was watching this episode. It takes Spock about eight seconds to realize that the imbalance on this planet is bad. It's worse than bad. It is unsustainable. So I'm curious how the Federation has never noticed this. Yeah, father, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, Kirk is willing to ignore the plight of the troglites entirely, it seems, until it's right in his face. It's kind of interesting. The advisor, you know, says, oh, they're disruptors. And Kirk's like, why are they disrupting? And he says, well, they have demands. And Kirk's like, what are the demands? And the advisor says, eh, nothing for you to worry about. And Kirk says, excellent. Where's my plant spray? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's just, he's, he's fine letting it go until he can't i mean until it's actually in his face so so spock's already seen it and he's he's trying to figure out you know how this is going to go down and kirk almost seems to want to be ignoring it mm-hmm. until he can't ignore it although he's not as bad as uh you know the, the people in uh, stratos right uh this is an absolute bonk bonk on the head episode <laughs> almost as much as uh let that be your last battlefield And yet the idea that it presents, one that it seems to me is woven into the fabric of Star Trek, is one that people will readily argue against and do on a daily basis. Mm. That people in every stratus of every society should be treated fair and equally and be given, and I'll underline that word, given opportunity. Mm. Now, I'm not saying they should be given everything that they need, Mm -hmm. (laughs) although... Mm -hmm. You could make an argument that a decent society would make sure that that happens to members of its own society, but they at the very least need to be given opportunity. Right. Um, Also, the idea that the rewards of a society should be shared among every member of a society. Now, this is not something that every episode of Star Trek plays out, nor is it even an idea with which every episode of Star Trek meshes. You, um, I think, accidentally mentioned... Oh, no, that wasn't you. I'm sorry. We were talking before the show about uh, the Horda. Mm-hmm. Uh, the miners are there for a reason. Go back to Mud's mm-hmm. women. The miners are there for a reason. They're going to get rich. And yet we're also constantly presented with this idea in Star Trek that, you know, money's not a thing anymore. Well, it is. Right. But right. it does seem to be an idea and an ideal inherent in the show's philosophy that it's actually not. And that we don't have to have the kind of struggles that, that the people of, uh, well, that, they, that the, the Shroglites are having against Stratos at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I feel certain that I will be called a lefty, whatever on this but that is it seems to me exactly 
what this episode is saying. They even go on later to say that the poor and downtrodden are not poor and downtrodden because that's just the way it is and some things will never change, but rather because the situations uh, in which they are kept keep them that way. Now, it's interesting to me that you said that uh, David Gerald did not like the fact that there was gas there. Yeah. The gas actually makes perfect sense to me in this episode. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, Bones comes in and says, um, don't bother with the drug lights. They're 20% less intelligent than the people of uh, Stratos. And mm. Spock's like, yeah, you're 20% less intelligent because <laughs> right. there's no way that that's possible. They're yeah. the same people from the same planet. Now, right. uh, as you said, Bones knows what's going on. What's weird is he was like, don't even bother talking to them because they're idiots. Oh, uh, and by the way, I know why. I know and why they're idiots. It. Right. Yeah. And I can, and yeah. I can cure them. Yeah. Um, turns out that Bones knows what's affecting the troglites. Um, it's their time in the mines. And he also knows that taken out of the mines for a while, they can operate at the same level as the people of Stratos. Now, one has to assume, or at the very least wants to assume, that he wrote off reasoning with the troglites, that Bones wrote off reasoning with the troglites, because time is of the essence. They have less mm -hmm. than 12 hours to get the Zenite to Merrick II, and right. that's maybe not enough time for the effects of years of raw gas emitted by the Zenites to be washed out of their system. If you want to put that a different way, you can physically take the child or adult out of the system that has kept them malnourished, undereducated, and without readily available opportunity for advancement in a moment's time, but... You can't take the system that has kept them malnourished, undereducated, and without readily available opportunity for advancement out of the child or adult who's been in it for years quite as quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, let me wrap all that up by saying lefty Lucy, <laughs> righty tighty, you know I'm fun at a party. No, I can't afford to throw it, <laughs> but I will make it interesting if you invite me. Um, uh, all very well said, Ken. Um and here's the thing. first of all, the, the David Gerald story, uh, you can read actually quite a bit of that online if you search just David Gerald and Cloudminders. Uh, he's done a few interviews where he talks about uh, how that script changed and uh, what his intentions were. He actually, uh, I'll just give you a very, very brief uh, uh, summary, but there's a lot more to it than what I'm about to say. He actually had the troglites kind of divided into two factions, uh, some who were following sort of a more violent revolutionary path. He had kind of cooked it up in his brain as uh, like a Malcolm X figure, mm -hmm. and then another group who were more pacifist uh, revolutionaries, more of like a Martin Luther King uh, uh, approach on on changing the societal uh, differences. Uh, so he, he had more of a political thing going on there as well. Um, but I think his whole point was, well, when you introduce the gas, then you're just saying, here's this thing that we can turn off, boom, we're done, and then we fixed it. Now, I, to their credit, to their credit, though, at the end of this episode as aired, we see Vana and Plasis already at loggerheads with each other. Yes, so, well, I, honestly, I like the fact that it is something that you are saying it is something you can turn off mm -hmm. because then you have to address the fact that, yeah, but we're not gonna. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I like the, I like from what you've just told me, and I do have to go back and do the reading that you were talking about, but from what you were mm -hmm. just told me, I do like his other treatment of it as well. Mm -hmm. This is, I've joked before about bad episodes that make me want to read the novel, like, um, mm -hmm. Oh, uh, the one with the with the computer, yeah. Because that's because there's only one. <laughs> there's only one. Yes. The one with Red Hour. Um, oh, oh, uh, uh, Landrew. Yes, and, Landrew. Uh, Return of the Archons. Yes. yes. Okay. I I've, I've said that I wanted to read Return of the Archons, like the novel of that before, because right. it feels like that would make it um, a, a good episode mm -hmm. in a way. This is a good episode, but I really found myself wanting more. 
mm-hmm. and, and not in a bad way, but in a, wow, I want to know, okay, so like, did, uh, first of all, was it just that the people of Stratos were lazy? did they leave the cave because they were like "Ah, i'm so tired of of living in a cave and working and and nuts to this i'm leaving then they get outside they breathe the fresh air and they're like oh i have an idea i'm gonna keep those people working and i'm gonna go do something else or was it more like the um you know as they might be giant says the allegory of the people in the cave by the greek guy where you know they go outside the cave maybe the earliest people who would eventually go on to found stratos came back in and said We've been a bunch of troglodytes. Why don't we go outside? And the troglodytes were afraid of what was outside. And so they stayed there. You know, mm-hmm. how do you get and, and how do you get from basically Mr. Ugg, you know, digging in a cave to building a cloud city? Right. There's a there's a tremendous amount here that I, I would love to just explore more. If only the guy who wrote the original story felt he could write novels. <laughs> if only. Yeah. We should if send only. him an anonymous email. Yeah. Hey, could you write a novel <laughs> of this? Yeah. Please. I'll be your friend. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing about your, uh, your your monologue at the beginning of this section, which again, yeah. I, I very much appreciate, is that you know, in very simple terms, yeah, this is something that helps to continue the definition of this 23rd century world uh, that, that we're depicting. We're trying to depict, or Star Trek is trying to depict this world where people do have equal opportunity, where there is less of an emphasis, even though we see that things have value, there is less of an emphasis on uh, ownership and accumulation of wealth solely for the purpose of accumulating wealth. Um, so I, I don't think there should be anything too terribly controversial about what you said, because to me, this fits in very nicely with our understanding of what this Star Trek world is. Of course, a Federation ship would show up. Of course, it would show up and see this kind of economic disparity and go, oh, wow, the, this is this is not the way that we want things done, particularly not for a Federation member planet. Um, which, no. again, goes back to the, the surprise that nobody would know about this disparity yet. Yeah. No, you know? I, I don't think there's anything – I don't think there's anything sort of surprising about the fact that Star Trek would want Star Trek to be that way. I think where mm-hmm. it becomes an issue mm-hmm. is when you sitting in the 20th or 21st century or 22nd, you know, maybe – I don't know how yeah, things Whenever we're recording yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that you would say that's how things should be here. Mm-hmm. It seems like any time – Anytime we step out of something that's like, you know, somebody shouldn't step on a bug that's actually an intelligent being or or nobody should make fun of Vulcans. I mean, it mm. seems like anytime we go any further into Star Trek is saying how society should be, somebody will yeah. write to us and say, you're ruining Star Trek. <laughs> right. And my right. thought is if you're watching Star Trek without seeing that Star Trek are regularly says how society is being or how society should be. Yeah. You're ruining Star Trek. <laughs> or you're wasting yeah. your time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I just, you know, I thought you were going to get some of the hate mail and and now no, I just brought it all back to me. Oh, yeah, well. It's okay. You go right ahead. Yeah. Um but but here's the thing. Okay, so the the subject matter, the topic and you mentioned earlier that I was going to mention Metropolis. And yeah, absolutely we have to mention Metropolis. Yeah. 1927 Fritz Lang's Magnum Opus. Um if you haven't seen it, please do. There are some great DVD and Blu-ray restored versions of that movie. Um, but the the thesis of that movie 
is summed up in the line, there can be no understanding between the hands and the brain unless the heart acts as a mediator. And you have the exact same thing. You have this rich ruling class who operate only at their leisure. They they have every technological advancement. They have the time and the freedom to do whatever they want. They live in these massive skyscrapers, totally removed from the surface. And then you have the poor downtrodden workers who brilliantly in the movie move mechanically. Um, They all look the same. They all go to work and leave work the same way. And they're just moving machinery and it's just mind numbing, repetitive work. Uh, And then you have, well, spoiler for a movie that's <laughs> nearly 100 years old. Um, but but then, you, then you have a revolutionary. What? Who, who, I know. Dude, I, know. I was, I was going to watch that this weekend. Uh, uh, so, uh, I didn't tell you who the revolutionary is. Yeah. So there you go. I'm going to start um, singing How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, though. Oh! <laughs> Which may or may not have anything to do with what you're saying. May ahead, not have anything to do with it. But yeah, but, yeah, uh, but, but that is the uh, – that, that's sort of the bonk-bonk on the head moment, as you would say, um, that – that you can't maintain this kind of civilization. Um, you, you have to have some compassion, some humanity to treat others humanely. Um, so, of course, Metropolis played in uh, a big part to my, my filtering this episode. Um, you don't necessarily have to have that, though. No, not at all. Not at all. But, but they, they, they're very nice parallel stories. They're, they're very nice companion pieces, I would say. Well, no, I'm saying I think fiction. it feels like we've found a way in society today to get around. Keep people thinking that they can always get rich. I mean, that's basically mm-hmm. it. And, you know, and the thing is, people can get rich. I mean, that's the deal, too. Not to make it all about money. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are countless stories of people who pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and made it to the top. And those stories mm-hmm. are true. The problem is you've got almost as much chance of winning the lottery. I mean, there's so much stuff that goes into all of those things coming together. Yeah. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not – I don't want to be the, you know, 99%, 1% guy or right. 97%. 3% or whatever you want to say it is. Yeah. There are opportunities out there, but it seems to me that they need to be made easier. And when you say you can't have a society that sustained this way, you can, you just have to offer enough hope. Wow. Going back to Bane, actually, mm, that was the yeah, whole thing in the yeah, dark yeah. night rises was Bane yeah. was saying, you know, what I'm gonna, you know, how I'm going to keep these people in control by letting them think there's a way out. Mm-hmm. And maybe even, you know, that was, that was the idea of the running man as well. Oh, mm-hmm. things are terrible. But here, watch this. Somebody's actually going to go to Tahiti. It's a magical right. place. No, I'm sorry. Right. That's a different thing entirely. <laughs> I'm going to see how many different references from science fiction and superhero stuff I can get into this episode. That's all of them. Yeah. All. Well, getting close. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when you say that you can't do that, I think eventually you're right. I think eventually people sort of, you know, get hip to the idea that uh, this game is rigged in a well, big yeah, I mean, way. The- yeah, yeah. The, the the pendulum swings. I mean, we, we see that every, you know, well, not every generation necessarily, no. but, but you see that historically. You see that the pendulum swings and then there are uh, either large or small revolutions to try to shake that up. But we've know? never had the level of technology that we've had that we have today. 
mm-hmm. I mean, as you and I record, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing. Uh, what, the old Bruce Springsteen song was fantastic, 57 channels and nothing on. Well, yeah, because <laughs> you've only got 57 channels. My right. goodness, we've got 500 now. I want to watch yeah. something about guys who make duck calls. Well, I want to watch something about guys who drive trucks on ice. Well, guess yeah. what? Guess there is what? something for you and for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to watch a soap opera. There's a whole network for you. You're kidding right. me. I mean, it's. Right. I mean, we've got so many different ways to distract us at this point that I actually. I mean, ugh, it's. I'm. I, it sounds like I'm calling for something, and I'm not. I'm wondering if the kind of thing that you're talking about when you say we we have revolution every every um, generation. First of all, I'm not saying that revolution is what's needed necessarily, but second, I, maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Depending on mm-hmm. how advanced you are, where you are. Mm. Eh. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to talk about some of the other topics because there are many that yes. are raised by this episode. Um, the uh, We've seen this a little bit before in Star Trek. Uh, well, maybe going back to Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, but the, the kind of justification used by Plasis, mm-hmm. uh, the in describing how very different the troglites are. He, he lowers them to something other. <laughs> than than what they are, even though Spock calls it out, he says, "Well, look, you know, evolutionary uh, from from that perspective, biologically, they are the same. They are the same species, and there's really no other explanation for that." Um, but Plasta says they are incapable of the kind of thought that has raised his people to the lofty artistic lifestyle that they enjoy. Um, and that is a, a justification used in all kinds of mistreatment of other human beings, just to say, well, they are different, they are incapable, therefore we shouldn't even try. Um, so I, I was not surprised to see that come back in this episode. Did you think that Plasis believed it? I mean, Kirk actually accused him at one point when, when Plasis says, we're not going to let him use the masks. Kirk says, wow, will you not let them use the masks because you don't think they'll work or because you're afraid they will? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think Plasis knew, or do you uh, think he was blind to it? Uh, well, you know, I I am kind of of a mind that he was blind to it. Mm, that, okay. uh, yeah, I, I think you could make a good case either way. You could make a case that he knew and was simply doing everything he could to maintain that kind of status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that he knew but, before the episode, but I mean, once it's presented to him, mm-hmm. he, he's not interested in knowing at that point. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, that's a shocking thing to have an outsider come in and say, what you're doing is wrong. What, what you, and what you're doing can be fixed. And here's how. Um, because that kind of goes into my next point, the, the blindness to reality going on in this episode, which, again, we've, we've seen before. We talked about a, a little bit in uh, The Way to Eden. It, the high advisor is blind to the cruelty inflicted on the troglites. The troglites, or at least in the guise of Vana, uh, is blinded to the scientific reality that the gas is what keeps them enslaved. You know, everyone is using this kind of motivated reasoning or at least the blatant rejection of facts to hold on to their destructive beliefs. Um, so on either side. And it's very interesting. I was just reading an article not long ago about um, how there are scientific studies about how we reject scientific fact. You know, we, <laughs> we start with our emotions. And, and even when presented with fact, and especially when presented with fact, the blinders sort of go up. And, and when it doesn't fit with our worldview, it doesn't 
feel good emotionally, we reject it. Mm-hmm. And we have that from both ends here because Kirk, you know, here, here's McCoy being rational with, look, uh, I solved this. I fixed it. We need a gas mask. Go down there. They're set. And here's Kirk saying, look, we figured this out. Here you go. Gas mask, put this on. You're good to go. Total rejection of that because they would rather maintain, even Vana would rather maintain what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, no, you're not. You know? Yeah, well, I don't know that she would rather maintain. It's just, I mean, uh, let's bear in mind she has had years and years and years of the whole gas thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, although, yeah. Although they did say that she would be over it because she was up in the city. I'm not sure why she held on to it. I don't think it was that she wanted the status quo, though. I think it was still her distrust of, well, the man. And the problem sure. is when Kirk sure. shows up and he's all buddy-buddy with the people in Stratos, then he's obviously the man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very true. Yeah. Uh, th- there is a great line, though, at the end uh, that Spock has, which I-, I really thought when he was talking to Droxine, uh, who is not a drug, um, <laughs> he says, there is great beauty in the knowledge that lies below. Um, and-, and I thought that was kind of nice because people who would people who would re- reject the idea of having knowledge of things that are difficult or uncomfortable um, are missing out on the beauty of that knowledge. I, I kind of like that. Um, so Spock had a good line. Um, and I also admire Droxine's character change. You know, it, it, on the one hand, she's kind of this spoiled princess. You know, it, she's, she's like somebody who was raised in Beverly Hills with no idea that, you know, people in the rest of the world do things like clip coupons or wash their own cars or, you know, mm-hmm. these things are just completely uh, uh, unthinkable to her. Uh, but you start to see that at the end that she's actually going to do the work and go to the mines and then maybe she will be that mediator um, or at least part of that mediation process between the troglites and the uh, the people of Stratos. Who and, knows? And Kirk looked at her and said, you want to live like common people? <laughs> nice. Yeah. That counts nice. as singing for this episode, by the way, because oh, you know, yeah. that, that's how Shatner did it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we also snuck in a little bit of an ecological message about the people of Merrick, too. The very obvious uh, uh, dilemma that they're in. If all the plant life is destroyed... The people will die too. <laughs> you know? So, I think so anybody on Merrick too is like, where's my TV show? We nearly died here, and you just did 48 minutes about two groups arguing. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, if you learn nothing else from this episode, uh, if plants die, we die. Exactly. If, yeah. Well, if all the plants die. Yeah. Like, if yeah, you right. kill a plant in your house, you know, you should probably no. take care of better Which, care of the next one, but don't worry, you'll be fine. Yeah, that's why I'm not allowed to have plants. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, and I think we all saw the hypocrisy coming right away that Stratos is a violence-free area and we keep it that way through violence. Yeah. <laughs> through the torture machine. Yeah, it's another one of those, you know, where we get to sort of, you know, examine what we are as opposed to what we say we are. Where we yeah, are yeah. played by the Supreme Advisor, advisor of uh, Stratos City. Um, his daughter says they've completely eliminated violence, uh, but you know, except for the torture chamber where Droxine, uh, where Droxine is actually watching Vana. So it's not even like she doesn't know. It's not like her father is keeping her hidden from this. She's like, we don't have violence. Oh, this, this isn't violence. We just need this, Mm -hmm. which is, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that because it's necessary to keep their perfectly balanced society, which of course doesn't have violence because this isn't violence. 
Right. It, it's, you know, not against what they are or, or what they say they are or who they want to be. It's just necessary. Yeah. Well, again, it goes back to that thing about the, the, the justification, the motivated yeah. reasoning to say that we will we will maintain things and we, we will justify ourselves into that position to say that this isn't torture and what we're doing is not wrong. It's not inhumane. It's just the way it is because they won't understand anything else. Yes, there will be no burning this village to save it. Right. <laughs> there will be right. shooting people so that we can, you know, maintain the freedom of all people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, good times. Looking to help a society rebuild? There's work to be done on the planet Ardana. After recent years of political unrest, Ardana needs architects, anti-grav engineers, artists, miners, cooks, and more. In short, Ardana needs you. A new life awaits. Ardana is calling. Uh, another crappy season three episode. What? This is not. Uh, look what I did there. Uh, time now to uh, suss out the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode and uh, figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. I, you know, it's, it's subtle. Bonk, bonk. <laughs> it's hard to tell on the head what the episode was about, John. But uh, I don't know. Were there messages, morals, or meanings that you picked up anywhere in any of this? I think there there may have been the combo platter of <laughs> messages and meanings in this episode. Um, first of all, I, I will say that, yeah, to me, in terms of it holding up, this is one of the best season three episodes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's the very best of Star Trek. You can see where there are all kinds of little pacing issues or, or oddities, but – it is very, very good. Um, I, I don't know that I would even start with this episode if I was showing somebody who is new to the show. Um, but no, uh, no, you yeah. wouldn't. You, I don't think you would show this one. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, it's very much to me like we talked about with the "Let That Be Your Last Battlefield." I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is this is not a subtle episode. This is a no. you know, written in crayon on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in big letters. <laughs> Here's what's wrong. Fix right. it. Yeah. Well, and that's what was so cool. So we got yeah. to tackle a lot in this episode, uh, sort of this racial slash economic disparity going on. Uh, you can sort of interpret that in either way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, treating others humanely, uh, being aware of these socioeconomic conditions that bring us the products we need. We didn't even talk about that, but we're faced with that all the time. You, you know, you talk about people mining for diamonds in in another continent and we don't even think about that when we're going to buy pretty jewels in a jewelry store you know <laughs> so so that that i thought was uh was an interesting idea of kirk just going and say well we need this and thank you very much people of the beautiful city strato see ya um we got to deal with prejudice we, we got to deal with science versus belief again um i love droxine's line uh, to her father, are we so sure of our methods that we never question what we do? This goes back to your uh, statement about Star Trek asking us on more than one occasion, are we who we say we are? Right. Um, and she summed it up there and, and I thought uh, stated it very, very well. Um, and, and to me, this is sort of the, the great temperance of progress. We get better things all the time. 
and we get better at things all the time. Progress marches on, whether it's technologically or, or however you want to, to frame that. But we also have to accept the discovery that we may not always act uh, humanely or ethically on the road there. So we have to turn back around and ask ourselves, <laughs> exactly as Droxine did, are we so sure of our methods that we never question what we do? Um, I think it's very well stated, and I think that is probably one of the great, if not the greatest, takeaways from this episode. How about you, Ken? Well, the one other thing that I would add, and um, I certainly mean Mr. Gerald no disrespect, but I like the fact that it was a gas that you could turn off. Because that, mm-hmm. that, to me, is the other message of this. This can change. I mean, mm-hmm. it does. I mean, there are two parts to it. The first part is you have to see it or recognize it or know that it's there. And then the second part is you can fix it. Now, yeah. it's not easy, and we don't know how it's going to be fixed. And just, you know, again, to do the whole left, right, whatever thing, it's not you can't just throw money at the problem. You know, yeah. in, in the 20th, 21st, 22nd, maybe century, you can't just throw money at it. That's not going to fix it. Just like you can't just take these people out of the minds. That's not going to fix it. What that's going to do is that's going to actually wake them up. (laughs) That's going to make them realize, wow, I thought things were bad before, but now I can actually think things are bad. I mean, they're not leaving them with a happy ending. They're not leaving them with everything. (laughs) Sorry. Mm -hmm. They're not leaving them with everything tied up in a nice bow. They're leaving them um, on the road to something better. Well, better for half of them. You know, like a lot of other planets that we've visited in Star Trek now, it it kind of makes me worry and it makes me curious. What would this be like if we revisited this planet a year from now, 10 years from now, 30, 50 (laughs) years from now? Bunch bunch of troglites licking their fingers and Kurt going, there were people uh, from from a cloud city. Do you remember? Have you seen that? No, no. Doesn't ring any bells. No, I'd rather I'd honestly rather read the history of this planet than read the future of this planet. I will. I will decide that, Okay, this is all going to be fine now because they woke up and decided. And, you know, it's another example of Star Trek, you know, tapping on the TV screen going, hey, you out there watching time to get up, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And sadly, 50 years later, it's, you know, yeah. Maybe time yeah. again. I don't know. Yes, I think the episode holds up, and yeah. I've just volunteered to take all the hate mail again. Oh, speaking of which, if people want to send you know hate mail or you know messages agreeing, those would be nice. In fact, if if any party you agrees with this episode, please yeah you know, send that in this week because that one hate mail piece, yeah. Facebook, Skype, Twitter, the handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us. Oh, I guess I should give the address. Missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Ken, uh, I'm glad to say that uh, we will be back next week, and I'm thinking about doing a little redecorating. I'm thinking about the Savage Curtain. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Looking to explore the ruins of a fallen society? Look somewhere else, pal. Ardana is back and better than ever. Between the past and the future, between toils and spoils, between heaven and earth. 
Ardana is calling. Call your travel agent today. And transmission.